We're in a new series, and uh, we started it, uh, actually we cheated, we started the New Year's series last week when it was the old year, and uh, thought it'd be different. But we're in the new year now, and I want to talk to you a little bit about enthusiasm. It's, it's kind of hard to muster that these days, isn't it? I read of a man who complained all day long at his job that his shoes were too tight. Just hurt his feet all the time, every single day, and his co-workers got sick to death of hearing this, and they asked him, why in the world don't you just go buy some new shoes? Why do you wear the same uncomfortable shoes every single day? So he said, well, I'll tell you the story. You know how much I despise my job. And when I get home at the end of the day, and if there's any food on the table, it's not going to be much, and it won't taste very good. And when I do get home, uh, my daughter and my no good son-in-law who live with us, they have three animals they call children. Also, my brother-in-law has been living with us. And for four years, he's had no job, and he always takes the best chair in the family room and grabs the remote control. So when I sit on the edge of the bed at the end of the day and take off these miserable shoes, it's the first pleasure I have had all day long. You know, it seems like that life doesn't offer a lot to some people. They don't have much joy, not a whole lot of excitement. And they endure miserable routines every day while longing for for bedtime or maybe longing for retirement. And what's really sad is even some Christians, even some Christians have lost their first love And, you know, we're just kind of biding our time for eternity. But, friends, that is not what God intended for His children. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus did not intend for our life to just be tolerable. He came that we would live life abundantly. In fact, Psalm 69, 9, the psalmist was referring to Jesus when he wrote these words. The zeal for my house has consumed me. Jesus loved his life. He loved this world with a passion for every moment, which is why we read phrases like this in the Bible. Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Galatians 6, 9, let us never become weary in doing good. Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Ephesians 5, 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, dear, dear brothers, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, this past year, of course, has taken a toll. In fact, the last two years, I think, has taken a toll on us. And while most all of us would be content with just a, a good dose of encouragement, I want to go a step further today and focus on how you and I can obtain and sustain a spirit of enthusiasm. 
Do you know that the word enthusiasm is taken from the meaning of two Greek words in theos, which in Greek is in God. Did you know that? And the more the Spirit of God dwells within each and every one of us, then the more enthusiastic we should be. In John 4, Jesus has an encounter with an immoral woman from Samaria. That's going to be our focus today in John chapter 4. And the enthusiasm that Jesus offered this woman, it wasn't some shallow pep talk. It was about a permanent passion for living which could be applied to all of the circumstances of her life and our lives as well, our life as well. So let's examine this story because the same offer given to the Samaritan woman Jesus makes to us today. Now there were several factors that made life kind of empty uh, for this woman. First, she was a woman in a man's world. She was a woman in a man's world. Now in our day, we can't imagine the extreme prejudice that existed toward women in the first century. I mean, in the minds of many people of the day, people, women were just a, a cut above animals or existed only for the convenience of men. According to Jewish law, no rabbi could speak to a woman in public, even if she were his sister or even his wife. Can you imagine that? She was a woman in a man's world. She was also a Samaritan in a Jewish world. Verse 9 says, Jews do not associate with Samarians. Now, now that, that is a biblical understatement. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Back in 727 B.C., the Jews were taken captive by the Assyrians, and after years of hardship in prison camps, they were released, and they returned to rebuild Jerusalem. But they discovered that some of the uh, men of the country there who had been left behind had intermarried with the pagans that lived around them and had assimilated some of the religious practices of the pagans. And the loyal Jews would not allow those who had betrayed the faith to participate in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And they despised those who had intermarried uh, and regarded them as half-breeds. So it created a problem. I'll show you a map. It's always nice to do geography whenever we can. On this map, uh, you see three categories. It's kind of a small map here. I hope it's bigger. Yeah, it's much bigger there. Um, the yellow area there is Judea. That's where uh, the, uh, the Jews had resettled Jerusalem and everything was here. And then way over the top, that peak area was the Galilean area. And then right smack in the middle was Samaria, that green spot. Now, a faithful Jew, if he wanted to go to Galilee, if he wanted to go from the yellow to the pink, he would not go just straight north through Samaria. What he would do is he would go across to the Jordan River. He would cross the river and then go up on the far side, away as much as possible, never touch Samaritan soil, and then cross the river again and go back into Galilee. And that was quite a journey. And, and yet, and, and yet that, that was the mindset of people. No one wanted to go through Samaria. 
I had a guy tell me one time, he said, you know, Kentucky is the Samaritan of the Bible. <laughs> and the people would go great lengths. You know, they go all the way over, over into Ohio and go around Kentucky just to get to West Virginia, which makes no sense because nobody goes to West Virginia on purpose. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. And I'm praying for that fellow because he's still around. But anyway, the Samaritans retaliated by establishing their own place of worship. Now, I love the fact that we read in verse 4, I love this verse, speaking of Jesus, the Scripture says, Now he had to go through Samaria. In just a few words, what an what a amazing statement this is. It wasn't a geographical necessity. It was a divine imperative. He had to go show these people that God was no respecter of persons. She was a woman in a man's world, a Samaritan in a Jewish world, but she was also a sinful woman in a judgmental world. A sinful woman in a judgmental world. You've all heard of the good Samaritan. Warren Wearsby was a writer which Nick and I like real well. He refers to this chapter as the story of the bad Samaritan. Her life had not been one of moral purity. Verse 18 tells us she'd been married five times, and now she was living with a man to whom she was not married. And if you read the text, you can see and hear almost some of the hardness of sin in her attitude, in her voice. You know, the self-righteous Pharisees, of course, would not be dead, caught dead talking to a woman of such questionable character. It's no wonder that she came to the well in the middle of the day. This was not the normal time to go get water. Probably the other women had nothing to do with her. She just wanted to avoid people. If there's one word that would describe this woman, it would be the word thirsty, though. Not, not for physical water, but thirsty for spiritual water. And while performing this mundane task of drawing water from a well, this woman had an amazing, life-changing, exciting encounter with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It totally changed her life. It would turn out to be an offer that she cannot, could never refuse. That's our series, by the way. We want to expose you to some concepts from Scripture that we just can't refuse them. They're so amazing and so awesome. All right, so I want to take you through this. Verse 5. Jesus came, she, or he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, and I want you to know, Jesus initiated this conversation, even though he was tired. He had just completed this successful campaign in Judea where a lot of people were baptized. He'd now walked for a good number of hours to Jacob's well. And if he'd been, if he'd been like most of us, I think, the last thing he would want to do is get into a deep theological conversation, especially with a stranger. But you know what? You do know that Jesus wasn't like us. He wasn't like us. How often we may miss opportunities, I think, to witness for Christ, not just because of our lack of courage, 
but maybe because of our lack of enthusiasm about our faith. You know, I think enthusiasm has to be maintained. I don't think it just accidentally comes and, and plants itself in our life. Like a lot of things, discipline, it needs to be given attention. Our enthusiasm needs to be nurtured and watered and cared for. But here was Jesus, exhausted, but he initiated this conversation with this woman because he was concerned about every single soul. And even though she seemed kind of indifferent, of course, he started the conversation because Jesus knows what's on the inside. Now, when you think about it, what an unlikely witnessing opportunity this was. Here you got a stranger, you got a woman, you got a Samaritan, a notorious sinner as far as the viewpoint of the society. And, you know, she was probably trying to think of how can I get rid of this guy hanging around the well here? But, but Jesus broke through all those barriers with a creative conversation. He asked a question. He simply said, will you give me a drink? Now, I imagine the woman was shocked. Not only had he spoken to her, but he, he would ask to drink from her container. Now, of course, the Lord's request was simply a way to open up the conversation because what he wanted to talk to her about was not water from the well. He wanted to talk about living water. And notice also Jesus didn't have a canned sales pitch that he used in any way. He custom designed his approach to every, and he still does, to every individual. To Nicodemus, he talked about the new birth. Remember that? To the woman at the well, he talks about living water. But the Samaritan woman said to him in verse 9, probably sarcastically, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. What can, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? Now, now this, this worldly woman has a very hard time understanding spiritual matters. Jesus is not talking about physical water, of course. He's speaking about refreshment for this woman's spirit. But she cannot see it because... Her eye is on the physical. Over Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul once said, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. But when someone has been so focused, I guess, on the things of this world for so long, they have a hard time changing their interests. 2 Corinthians 4.18 repeats this warning. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, you know, this is great counsel for us as we live in these trying times right now. We get caught up in looking at and listening to all the mantras of the world and all the debates about politics and all the confusion about how to treat pandemics. but we need to set our minds on the Lord Jesus. But the woman of the well was enamored by the things of the flesh. 
And she couldn't get it when Jesus talked about the things of the Spirit. In verse 13, Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, as he points to the bucket that she's drawing from. Someone has said the pleasure of this water like salt water. They may satisfy momentarily, but the end result is stimulated increase for more. You know, gambling, drinking, lying, drugs, affairs, pornography, shoplifting, greed. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to satisfy anybody. The dosage has to be increased. The risk intensified to produce the very same thrill until you're hopelessly enslaved. That's why Jesus said everybody who drinks the waters of the world, they're going to be thirsty again. Verse 14, but whoever, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Thirty-six times in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks about life. And he's not just talking about the physical energy that keeps you and me here today. That's not what he's talking about. There's something about Jesus that keeps on satisfying. You can hear the same Bible verse, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you can hear that over and over and over again, and it still brings you comfort. You can sing the same song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it still brings assurance. You can share in the very same communion that we've already shared here this morning. You can do that every single week. Pray the same prayers, and yet it can still edify. And you can be in church every Sunday. And if you're growing in Christ, you can still say, I really enjoy being in the church today. You see, Jesus saves, but he also keeps, and he also satisfies. But the woman at the well, she didn't get that. She didn't understand it. She said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, that, I think that sounds a little bit sarcastic. We don't know for sure. But Jesus then did a strange thing. He confronted her sin, even though it was unpleasant to do so. Verse 16, he tells her, go and call your husband and come back. <laughs> now, why did he change the subject? It was not to scold her for her failures, not at all. But to, it wasn't just to show his power, but it was to help this woman focus on her spiritual thirst and help her see clearly how needy she really was. You see, Jesus was forcing her, and I suspect when you get into the Scriptures at any time, it forces us to take a look at our sin, to admit our sin. There can never be a conversation in Jesus' world without conviction. And her answer, it's the shortest statement in the entire conversation. I have no husband, she replied. Can you hear her? Can, can you hear her voice? The defensiveness? Isn't it interesting how often we resist confronting any problem in our lives? And I love Jesus' answer. Well, you're right when you say you have no husband. <laughs> he didn't say to her, you know, you're a liar. You know, he didn't say that. He didn't shake his head in disgust. 
No, he just simply spoke truth. Verse 18. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And this man that you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Someone has said that tact is the ability to make your point without making an enemy. But Jesus had that ability. He forced this woman to admit the truth. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to her. You see, there must be conviction before there's conversion. But when Jesus confronted this woman about her sin, she did what a lot of us do. She changed the subject again. She Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> what happens when we begin to talk about spiritual truth with some folks, they'll try to turn the attention away from their own need and they'll talk about something controversial. A lot easier to debate religious differences than it is to face our own sins. But Jesus didn't let this woman off the hook. He said in verse 24, God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know what he's saying? He's saying, man, it doesn't matter where you worship. It's who and how you worship. Those who worship God should worship from the heart. And then in verse 25, we read, she said, the woman said, well, I know, this is fascinating. She said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, in the, in the scenario I've described, think about how incredible that is. You know what I think has happened here? I think God has touched this woman's heart through Jesus' words. And this was one of the most incredible statements of truth. She's picking up on the truth that this man is not like every other man she had encountered. He's someone special. And she, she's now beginning to wonder. And then, even though she seems the most likely listener, I love this. Jesus reveals his identity. Verse 26, Jesus declared, I who speak to you, Am he. Now put to connect those verses. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, Ma'am, he's here. I'm here. Wow. This is only a recorded occasion before his arrest where Jesus specifically revealed that he was the Messiah. That's the, it, 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 I mean, unbelievable. Hmm. He's asked on other occasions, and he kind of just didn't answer or evaded the question. Many times he says, my time has not yet come. But it, I understand, maybe he said it here, too. Is it might not have created the problems to have this chat in Samaria like it would have created problems for him back in Judea. Yeah. That's another aspect of it. It doesn't make any difference, but he's somebody special. Wow. How significant that Jesus revealed his identity, not to a man who modeled morality, but to a woman who did not. Mm -hmm. But isn't that just like the Lord? Yeah. His love is so all-encompassing. 
But I want you to see the enthusiastic response now this one. Things are beginning to change. This is not the same jaded, cynical woman that first showed up at the well. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Suddenly, her life, this woman's life, has taken on a whole new excitement. She even left her water jug behind. Off she went. At one moment, she's concerned about physical water, but now she's beginning to be preoccupied with spiritual matters. She forgot why she came to the well. And the first thing she did was to share enthusiastically what had happened to her. And verse 30 says, they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Now, what's funny about this is by this time, the disciples have caught up. You know, they're, they're back in the picture again. And um, <laughs> they brought nobody with them. But this woman of the well brings a whole crowd of people back to Jesus. Isn't it interesting how few of us bring people to Jesus? What an indictment. You know, the very best evangelists are usually new Christians who go to people they know and care about and drag them to Jesus. But when we've been a Christian for 25, 30 years, whatever, we are not as likely to talk about it until 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. No, we've we got to sleep. But we should be willing. And when Jesus saw all these people coming with the woman, he said to his disciples, he said, guys, do not say, guys is not in there, by the way, it's me. But four months more, and then the harvest. Four months more, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus Christ was so enthusiastic about evangelism. He knew the church was never designed to be a hotel for saints. He understood that, and we need to do it as well. Verse 39 records, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, I told, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, now think about this a minute. Can you imagine, can you imagine the energy and the enthusiasm of this woman who is now responsible for dozens of people knowing about Christ. You see, there's joy about sharing what you believe with someone who's hungry to receive it. Here, here's a formula for you. I think I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Genuine conversion plus a positive purpose. What that equals is a sustained enthusiasm for your life. The world offers an occasional thrill, temporary stuff, pleasures here and there. But Jesus offers permanent joy and daily enthusiasm. One of the final verses of the Bible says, Whoever thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, very quickly, there's three, three principles I'm going to close. These are three principles Lessons that you need to take home with you. All of us need to do it, especially if you've been losing your enthusiasm of late. 
No one wants to just go through the motions of the Christian life. And if you kind of feel like that's where you're at, then God has brought you here to hear his word. Principle number one, no matter what sins you've committed, Jesus Christ will accept you. There's no sinner that Jesus doesn't love, no sin that cannot be cleansed by his blood, and no past that God cannot help you and me overcome. I spend a lot of time with men from the Saul to Paul ministry. I, I try to get out there once a week and, and hang out with these guys and you know, take some supplies out to them. But I want to tell you, you know, that ministry embodies the very principles that we've been talking about here. There is no sinner that Jesus doesn't love, no sin that cannot be cleansed by his blood, and no past that he will not help you overcome. And you know what message I hope that is for some of these men that have felt like they've really messed up their lives so badly. That's number one. Number two, no matter how many have been saved, the harvest is still plentiful. If we care about people, we need to maintain our enthusiasm and our intensity for winning the lost. Your neighbors, your friends, acquaintances, even a few ornery relatives, probably throw some of them in there too that need the Lord. Don't get me started on that. I'd name names here. I don't think that would, that would get me in trouble. But if we care about people, it's so vital that we see that there's plenty of room. There's room at the cross for you, as the song says. And then number three, no matter how difficult your life, hear me, no matter how crazy this last year has been, and the, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Maybe one of your big thrills is taking off your shoes and going to bed at night. <laughs> Maybe that's it for you. Or maybe your life is difficult. Whatever your situation, let us not grow weary in doing good, for the best is yet to come. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder. We, we know you are in the business of offering many, many, many things to us. And yet so oftentimes we refuse your offers. But Father, my, uh, my hope and prayer is as we get into this new year, as you will just energize us, you will enlighten our spirits, you'll give us uh, some holy gumption that we're able to kind of not just go with the flow, but make a difference. There's a lot of people that we know, just in the, in the people that are here today in this one, one room, people we know that don't know you the way they should. And so, Father, give us boldness. Give us the sense of excitement. When we read in the Bible these accounts, it's not just for some historical record. This is to remind us. There are examples for us who are now living that we have a responsibility. We have a job to do. We're not to be idle. We're not just to be in a holy huddle on Sunday mornings. But Lord, we've got to be open to our neighbors and the people across the street from us and the people we know and the people we don't know, the people we work with. And Lord, the time is, is short. We're not going to live forever in this world here. But we can certainly make a difference for a lot of other people. And we can take them with us into eternity. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. And thank you for Jesus, his gentleness, his insight, his, his ability to know just exactly what we need before we even speak it. We love you, Father. Thank you so much for another year. The old is going away, the new has come. Help us to walk faithfully and always be alert for opportunities to speak your name and share our faith in you. In Jesus, I ask this. Amen.